0: and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold, and we're on the third Sunday of Easter, and Father Serge Probst and I are going to talk about the resurrection. And what, one point that I want to make that I think is very important about the resurrection is that the four Gospels that talk about the resurrected Jesus all are remarkably similar. He's unrecognizable until you see him through the eyes of faith, then it's Jesus. He can be recognized by showing you his wounds. He's recognized in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. He's recognized by those that love him. And the similarity in all four gospels, which is that it's a woman, Mary Magdalene, who is the first person to witness to the resurrection. She, a sinner out of which apparently seven demons was, were, were cast out. These are startling things about the resurrection. I wanted to spend a little time talking about ancient notions of death and Jewish expectations about the resurrection. So ancient uh, notions of death. Let's compare what's similar from Roman, Greek, and Jew. So they had similar kinds of ideas. Idea one, oblivion. When you died, that was it. You were dust, nothing happens. Second was ideas of Hades or Sheol, the underworld, because they all thought as being underground because that's where people are buried. That's where dust goes. But it is a dehumanized existence. Odysseus visits Achilles. In Hades, in the Odyssey, and Achilles is powerful, godlike. Achilles, uh, his life's just miserable. He would wish for one more day of life on the earth uh, than to be in an honored place in Hades. It's also in Hades there was a place of torment. It was called Tartarus, and there's Tantalus, and he's in in Tartarus, the punishment part of Hades because he wanted to prove the gods weren't so smarty-smarty that he was gonna kill his son, chop him up, cook him, feed him in a pie to the gods, and they'd never even know the difference. Well, even the Olympian gods knew the difference, and so Tantalus was thrown into the darkest part of Hades, and his punishment was, and Dante relied on this, in his Inferno and in the Divine Comedy, he used similar kinds of punishments. The Greeks had Tantalus punished by being lashed into a river, and every time he could reach up to try to get a piece of fruit to eat, a wind would blow the fruit up higher than he could reach. And every time he tried to bend down to take a drink of water, the water would sink away. So he was dying of hunger, hunger and thirst because of what he tried to feed the gods. It's where our English word tantalizing comes from. Tantalus, tantalizing, the idea that it's desirable, but in the desiring it, you can't have it. And so Sheol was kind of like that. Um, although there's not great images, I think, of punishment in Sheol, but the idea of the Jewish idea of Sheol was that it was kind of a gray existence. They believed in ghosts. Um, and so, for instance, in First uh, or Second Samuel, uh, Saul, who has disappointed God by not following His commandments, tries to summon up the ghost of of uh, Samuel, the great prophet, and he comes up, but he's gray and and not human at all. Who disturbs my rest? So the idea of maybe resting with your ancestors, Shul is never really adequately described in. Uh, any of the uh, Old Testament scriptures, but you know, later in the New in the Old Testament, books like Book of Solomon, Second Maccabees, Book of Daniel's, there is references to uh, resurrection. But all these books are probably authored within two or three centuries of Jesus's birth, so they're the newest books in the in the Old Testament, which sounds kind of uh, oxymoronic, but there you have have it, even though the Old Testament has newer books. And uh, the images uh, of um, the Son of Man, what the Messiah might look like in, this, in the visions, and uh, what resurrection might be like, are really some of the roots of the book of Revelation. Uh, but they're really not picked up at all in in the stories of the resurrection. You know, in all four Gospels, um, they talk about fulfillment of Scripture until you get to the resurrection, and then there's just no mention of the Old Testament or fulfillment of Scriptures. They're just telling you the way it was. A woman brought the news. He had wounds in his hands. He ate and he drank with us. We recognized him in the breaking of the bread. But What was the Old Testament like? Well, here in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, uh, Daniel has a vision of the Son of Man. And remember, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so what's the the vision? It's what it says, starting in verse 9 of chapter 7 of Daniel. Thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, this is the Son of Man, took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head like pure wool, his throne was flames of fire with wheels of burning fire. Where do you see that in the New Testament? The first chapter of the book of Revelation, the last book the, in the New Testament, the newest book in the New Testament. And uh, it's John of Patmos has a vision. And in the vision, He sees in the midst of the lampstands, seven gold lampstands, like the menorah in the temple. A one like a son of man, this goes back to Daniel 7, wearing an ankle-length robe with a gold sash around his chest. Nothing like any of the four gospels describe Jesus. Notice they never describe his clothing. The hair of his head was as white as wool or as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame, just like Daniel said in chapter 7. His feet were like polished brass, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. I didn't read it, but that was also in Daniel 7. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face shone like the sun at its brightest. These are not the stories of the resurrection. This is this vision of this cosmic figure. I mean, a, a sword coming out of his mouth, that makes enunciation very difficult. I haven't tried it, but I can only imagine. So the stories of Jesus' resurrection aren't at all like ancient Greek, Roman, or Jewish views of life after death. They're not really found in the book of Daniel, but in in chapter seven, but in chapter 12 of Daniel, it does talk about the resurrection, and here's what it says. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, others to reproach and everlasting disgrace. But those with insight shall shine brightly like the splendor of the firmament, and those who lead the many to justice shall be like the stars forever. That very idea is picked up in the book of wisdom, and it says where the dead shall dart like sparks through the stubble the idea of of glowing brightly it's what we pick up in our saints with the nimbus right Uh, or you get some pieces of art of jesus glowing brightly but in the four gospels which are eyewitness reports recounted by the evangelists where's the story of jesus glowing at all um we didn't recognize him he had wounds in his hands uh, we, un- we knew him to be who he was when he revealed himself to us. Or even like in this gospel today where Jesus is cooking fish for them. Remember on the beach and Peter jumps out of the boat, he's got a fire going. Uh, it's always about recognizing it's Jesus because there's this connection, it's the wounds. Or in the story today in the, in the, um, in the gospel of John, Jesus has a coal fire, an anthracia going on the beach. The same word is used in John, where Peter is on a cold night, next to an anthracia where he denies Jesus. Three times anthracia is a cold fire. It's a, the coal fire is, it's an unusual way to describe fire, but there it is used twice in the Gospel of John, because you're supposed to draw a connection between where this conversation occurs where Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And where, in the courtyard, St. Peter denied Jesus three times. So what do you make of the stories of the resurrection that are so very different from the stories that are recounted um, in the Old Testament or Greco-Roman history? They're eyewitness accounts. There is no scriptural backdrop for it. There is something in the Old Testament about resurrection at the end, coming out of the dust, to judgment, at which time you'll shine. These are part of Christian Christian understanding. They're picked up in the book of Revelation. But the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're just telling you what happened. And what Father Serge Probst wants you to know is that with all of them, the key is the word Alleluia something amazing has happened. Let's take a moment and let's let Father Serge talk to us about the resurrection, the meaning of the word hallelujah in Christian practice. And then at the end of this, we'll pull it all together with what makes the stories of the resurrection so credible and so unique. Hi, we're back, and my guest again this week is Father Serge Probst, and we're talking about all the readings for the third Sunday of Easter, where in the Acts of the Apostles, the chief priests and the Pharisees, those who opposed Jesus are also opposing his apostles. They gave him strict orders not to teach, but the apostles are teaching. And in the gospel, Jesus meets with the twelve. They've gone back to fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And he's prepared breakfast for him on the beach. And if you remember the story, um, Jesus asked St. Peter three times, if you love me, feed my sheep. And so let's go and ask Father Serge to break down these readings for us. Father Serge, why are the episodes recounted in the gospel for this Sunday so very important to our practice of the Catholic faith, this
1: whole story about St. Peter jumping into the sea to see the risen Lord? Well, first of all, I think it's included in the gospel so that we might become very aware of the power of the Holy Spirit emanating from Pentecost and the resurrection of Jesus and changing human lives. Peter actually jumps into the sea twice. The first episode is in Matthew. But he begins to sink in the water. Remember, Jesus calls him to step out of the boat and come walk on the water with him. And he begins to sink because of fear and insecurity. Peter is changed at the resurrection, and the change is spectacular here. He doesn't even think about what he's doing. As soon as John says, it's the Lord, Peter jumps overboard. The question we have to ask is what power now is at work that can so transfigure a coward into such a brave man?
0: Well, part of it, remember Father Serge, is that the last time Peter and Jesus saw each other, Peter was by the fire in the courtyard of the Sanhedrin. And he was denying Jesus as Jesus was undergoing his own trial. And here, there's another fire on the beach. And so in the Gospel of John, these two issues are kind of tied together. But that sense of redemption, you suggest in your preparation for your homily this weekend that there's a word that expresses the phenomenal power of Peter's encounter with the risen Jesus on this uh, beach, that changed his uh, experience from experience of shame to being a living witness of the resurrection and the power of jesus uh to change our lives what's that
1: word that word is simply hallelujah and if you look at the liturgy that for the easter season especially it is used over and over and over and over again i'm afraid we take it for granted but in that one word is summed up all of the power of the resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost—it's a shout of triumph. Something has radically changed in the world, and we are part of that radical change. My understanding of the word Alleluia—it's really
0: based on the Hebrew, is it? For for praise, God. Ale is a is an ancient name for God, and Alleluia. Is, means basically praise God in Hebrew. Am I right on that?
1: Yeah, it, but except it's a little bit more than that. It's what you would scream if you were victorious suddenly, if everything goes right for a change. It's, a, it's an exclamation that God's work is now at hand. He has done something so amazing and so wonderful that we have no other word to say except hallelujah. Let me give you an image. A few years ago, I think it was, not, I think it was Costa Rica or Guatemala. I forget actually now. But I was down by a river, and they had some caiman there. Those are kind of like crocodiles in the area and can be very serious and dangerous. There was a boy on a very flimsy raft. He was coming into a dock, and two caiman got between him and the the dock. And we were all very concerned what was going to happen. He rode it close enough so that he was within, in a certain sense, almost jumping distance. And then suddenly he leapt like mad over the Cayman and landed just at the edge of the dock. We were afraid he was gonna actually fall backwards in, but he didn't. And at that moment, suddenly one of the women there screamed bloody murder. She screamed, Alleluia. I still remember that. It was a, a, a cry of victory. What was impossible had been done. The boy was safe. And suddenly she was joined by a group of other women all singing at the same time, Alleluia. It was like a natural Alleluia chorus. That's Easter, hallelujah, he has risen. Something unbelievable has just happened. We have been redeemed, we've been saved. We should get excited. And that's what's missing in our Easter celebrations. Some sense of excitement, some sense of, the world has changed and it's changed forever. And it's changed for the better, and it can't go back. So, uh, you know, it's, how do you
0: move into that uh, level of excitement when, you know, you, you live the Christian life year after year, I suppose you could go yearly and escape man-eating sharks or, or caiman that might bite you, but in a more practical sense for the listeners of Oro Valley Catholic, how would you encounter or release the power of
1: Alleluia into your life? Well, one of the things we need to do is really begin to be aware of what Easter means for us personally. We think of Easter as Jesus rising to eternal life. What we forget is in his rising from eternal life, I receive eternal life. And let's put it very bluntly. We Catholics do not believe in death. I'm not going to die. There's no way I can die. I have a life that is stronger than anything in this world and has been given to me by grace through Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. It's a little bit like my mother, who was a good Southern Baptist and a convert, but she understood Easter better than most of us. When my father died, She bluntly reminded all of us at the wake that we are not here to celebrate his death. She was very blunt, he's very much alive. We're here to celebrate his life. In fact, she reminded us that we get together and talk about him, but only because we were part of his life and we still love him, and all of us expect to see him again, to be embraced by him, to celebrate God's love for each one of us with him. So Alleluia reminds us that death no longer is part of our heritage it's not our fate life is our fate and so the Alleluia reminds us that we have victory not defeat life not death glory not shame
0: so the resurrection of jesus christ has turned death inside out and we're called to live the reality of that gift of divine life the grace-filled life now as opposed to say putting it off to some time after i die That's why we talk about the state of grace, that we want to live in this living relationship with uh, God that changes how I think about the struggles and joys of my life. And this word, alleluia, you're saying, as I understand it, is central to that transformation in our life. So how is it that when, say, the listeners to this podcast, when they pray, and how they use the word Alleluia, how they think of the word Alleluia, what do you think they can do in their daily lives, in their devotions, and um,
1: elevate them by using the word Alleluia? Well, first of all, this is what I did at the Angelicum in Rome when I was teaching at the graduate level there. I tried to explain to the students how important it is to acknowledge God's gift of grace to us and all the ways in which he comes to our aid in this life. We have words we use when we're angry, disappointed, cheated, betrayed, or so forth, and most of them should not be repeated. But you know, we have very, almost no words to celebrate the fact that God has blessed us, that God is with us, that God loves us, that God helps us overcome trials and tribulations. And we can use a word though, and the word was Alleluia. If you're being tempted and you overcome it, why not tell God, this is wonderful, tell the whole world, Alleluia, God is for real, he's active here and now. Actually, you could almost begin to determine who are my students because all of them began saying Alleluia And what was amazing is the number of times they said it so much so that I was asked by the Dean to calm them down Even outside of class Alleluia was occurring But it was telling everyone else that God is for real his action is every day. He's with us We don't recognize it because we take it for granted But if we say Alleluia suddenly we are alerted ourselves to how much God is doing for us right here and now His presence is always with us, and we suddenly become awestruck at how good he is and what wonders he works for us right here and now. Alleluia then should become a very short prayer, praising God every time he has victory in our life. And so if you go to
0: Rome and you see roving gangs of students yelling Alleluia, chances are they're from the angelicum. But here's what I would ask people to think about. You know, sometimes we need help in overcoming temptation or nagging thoughts about anger or grief or temptations in different ways. And to just remember the word Alleluia and what it means and to use it in a prayerful, prayerful way uh, to once again center us into the power of Easter joy. So I want to thank Father Serge Probst for being my guest here on Oro Valley Catholic. And uh, Keep them in your prayers. Keep us all in your prayers. And now in a moment, I'm going to try to pull this all together in the last segment of this
1: episode of Oro Valley Catholic.
0: And so I spent a little time talking about the nature of resurrection and uh, life after death ideas amongst the Greeks and the Jews and absolutely the Romans who had the same ideas as the, as the Greeks, basically, and what everybody meant by life after death. So as Christians, what is it that Christianity brings to the table that's so different? So the way that you think about it is what's similar? Well, all this stuff is about life after death, so there is a similarity to it all. But it's the dissimilarities that are significant. I'd like to point those out to you. The first one is this, is the idea that someone rejected by the people and crucified as a slave, that this is the one risen from the dead. Crucifixion was, according to the Romans, a slave's death. So why would that one be the risen Lord? For the Jews, uh, someone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Why would that one be the Lord? Why it is that Christians think that the heart of resurrection life is an understanding of the crucifixion, that God sides with the victims, that the people that the world thinks are out are not the people that are out. How about something like, oh, what would we say? Uh, The last will be first and the first will be last or in Mary's Magnificat, the rich are sent away uh, empty, but the poor are completely filled because it's all about what's important in God's eyes. So the common elements of the Messiah, if you look into back into the Jewish Old Testament, he's gonna be this great leader. We talk about this all the time. He's gonna be a king. Um, he's gonna restore the Davidic uh, kingship. Um, Christianity fulfills all of that in an absolutely amazing way that's not foreseen by really anyone in Israel, but in hindsight, especially when you look at Isaiah and the suffering servant songs, um, Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills the Old Testament in a way that it would be extremely hard to predict. That's why you pray for God, but what, what's gonna happen, friends, God's gonna surprise you. He's the God of surprises. But the second part of it is, is that the idea of the resurrection is associated with Jesus that Christians will rise from the dead and and to glory, and that those who reject God will rise from the dead, but to shame. And so there is some of the echoes of some of the stories of how it is that uh, what life after death looks like. But what Christianity brings is that at the center of all of this is the end-time judge, Jesus, who we meet in our judgment after our death. And then the portrayal of the resurrection. Just think of how the story of the resurrection is told. Clearly, this is not the Old Testament understanding. If you go back to the book of Daniel and you look at the stories about the Son of Man, he shines like the sun. Where you see that image of Jesus is in the book of Revelation, which is a vision about the end times. And it draws right from Daniel, which is, before Jesus' time, by about 200 years. And the book of Revelation, one of the last books put together in the Old Testament, which recovers this image from Daniel and applies it to Jesus. But the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus doesn't shine, he doesn't light up any rooms. He looks just like a human. And that he's not recognizable, except through the eyes of faith. Like in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, he's recognized in the breaking of the bread. In the Gospel of John, he's recognized because he shows his hands in his side. He also eats and drinks. So the portrayal of the resurrection as something that participates, can participate in life as we understand it now, eating and drinking with our marks from our past, this is something completely unique to Christianity. The second thing is that uh, when they get to talking about the, uh, the resurrection, notice in all four gospels and in Paul, they don't quote to the Old Testament. In the rest of the gospels, they all talk about the fulfillment of the scriptures. This was said, this was done, fulfills the scriptures, but it's never said about the resurrection because the Old Testament is kind of a blank when you talk about what the, what the uh, apostles experiencing Jesus' resurrection. And then the third thing, which is the reason all these stories are so credible, is in either Jewish, Greek, or Roman culture, all around the time of the Gospels, women couldn't be witnesses in a trial. They were considered too erratic and undependable. Why is it that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, chooses in all four Gospels a woman as his messenger? Um, it's because the purpose of the resurrection is to heal what's wrong with humanity. when you go back to Genesis, what's at the heart of what's wrong with human beings is a relationship between man and woman, husband and wife. It's why the sacrament of marriage is, in fact, a sacrament. It's about the healing of the human race. It's much more than just about romantic love. And I hope you all romantically love your spouse. But... The sacrament is about healing of the broken relationship in humanity. You know, the, we think of the Gospels as the earliest statements of the resurrection. They are not. They may date as early as the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. And uh, scholars argue about it. I think the best way to look at it is uh, late 50s and, and the 60s, at least for Matthew. And uh, Mark maybe late sixties, and uh, Luke probably after Paul's death. Um, No, before Paul's death, because if Luke had written after Paul's death, as I remember, he probably would have said something about Paul dying in the Acts of the Apostles, and he doesn't. So that puts most of the gospels uh, twenty years after Jesus' death, thirty years after Jesus' death. But the earliest statement about the resurrections from the Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is from sometime in the 40s within a decade or two of Jesus' death. And all it says is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, God raised him from the dead. Um, it's because this is what Christians accept. It is hard to wrap your mind around. But when Father Serge talks about hallelujah, it's that nothing is final in this world. No power in this world has the final say. No matter what happens to you in your life, you belong to God. He's your only judge. Nobody on this side of the grave can, uh, can judge you. Um, of course, you better avoid criminal law judges because they have a very different perspective on it, and I support them in that perspective, but it's very limited. So, hallelujah, Jesus is risen from the dead, and it's a surprising fulfillment of scripture. God bless you, until next time, an Oro Valley Catholic.